you'd open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, continuing our study in this dear epistle. The focus of our study is verses 6 and 7, but to help us get our bearings, we'll read from verses 1 all the way to verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We have discovered in our previous studies that Paul's life is coming to an end. His race is nearly over. It is the last round as what has become a long and arduous fight. He has suffered from day one of his ministry. He has suffered throughout his ministry. And so he ends his ministry in suffering. He bears in his body the marks of Jesus, the the marks of suffering, persecution, and torture, Galatians 6.17. He is now over 60 years old. He is an older man. His body is showing its age, his strength is ebbing away. And sadly, we find he doesn't have the honor that befits an aged man. Instead of treating with, being treated with honor and respect, deserving of such a man, of character, integrity, devout faith, he is being treated with contempt and scorn, treated like a common criminal. As we all have studied before, he's in a cold and dark dungeon, being fed stale and rotting food, chained as a convict, as a lawbreaker. We wonder, what is Paul thinking? What is in Paul's mind? And to our amazement, we find that the first word that flows out of his mouth after his introduction, after his greeting to Timothy is, the word thanksgiving, carizo, thanksgiving, gratitude, have I. He does not lament the unjust and cruel execution he knew soon awaited him. His heart is not full of grumbling and complaining. He is not having a pity party. Our dear apostle, This man of God, his thoughts were on his sovereign God and his memories were of his beloved son in the faith. 
Timothy, this dear partner in the gospel, whom Paul led to faith in Christ, this dear partner in the gospel whom Paul ordained into the ministry, this dear partner in the gospel, he had fellowship with him in the laboring for the gospel of Christ, whom he ministered alongside for many years, the man he would never see again. These are the memories that flood Paul's heart. Only the Lord could give such an unbelievably beautiful perspective where Paul is in prison and he is full of thanksgiving and all because he remembers Timothy. This is how, we studied a few weeks ago, Paul received grace. He received grace from God by remembering Timothy, by remembering Timothy in his prayers. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Night and day is a figure of speech. All day and all night, I am in prison and I am praying. And constantly and continually, I am remembering you, Timothy, in my prayers. And by praying for Timothy, he receives grace. Teaching us that intercessory prayer is a means of grace. Praying for others is a means by which God blesses and ministers to us. God's love is to save us from ourselves. And one way he accomplishes that is by way of us praying for others. Not focusing on our situation, our circumstances our trials, our pain and disappointments, we take our eyes off ourselves and we pray for others in their need, God grants us grace. Hearts where full of thanksgiving draws us nearer to God. Not only that, verse 4, Paul remembers Timothy's tears. Timothy's tears of love. Now, Paul tells us how everyone has deserted him in his trial, he is utterly alone. Men that he leaned upon have forsaken him. <clears throat> Nobody loves him. Nobody acknowledges him. Nobody supports him. But he remembers Timothy. There is a man out there. Last time we met in our departure, he wept. He shed tears for me. And Paul remembers Timothy's love toward him. And here is this great giant of the faith, this courageous man of God. His heart is buffeted and strengthened by the love of a fellow believer, telling us that all Christians, especially Christian leaders, are encouraged by personal care, devotion, affection of fellow believers. Finally, most importantly, Paul remembers... Timothy's sincere faith. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Like verse 3, I remember. Verse 4, I remember. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am confident, I am sure, dwells in you also, telling us, the true faith of fellow Christians is a source of immeasurable encouragement and strength. 
And we experience that, do we not? That when we consider fellow believers who have genuine, and the Greek, unhypocritical faith, consistent faith, a faith that has integrity, a faith that is the same in season and out of season, in the times of prosperity and times of want, their faith is clear, faith is strong. Every believer, we think of such people because it strengthens us, encourages us, and comforts us. Paul was encouraged because of Timothy's genuine faith. The opposite is true also, right? That believers who have a hypocritical faith. And the hypocrite in the Greek stage was someone who wore a mask. They're acting a part. They would put on a mask and they would call them really innocently. Their term was hypocrite. And it became to be known as someone who played a part, who was disingenuous, who portrayed a false reality about themselves, put on a mask outwardly, but in their hearts was completely different. This term was applied by Christ towards the Pharisees. It can be applied to many people who profess faith in Christ. Because... Because their faith is hypocritical. Those with false faith discourages, hurts, and pains believers. It pains spiritual leaders. I mean, it just cuts to the heart. It's like someone stabbing you with a knife when you find a person with hypocritical faith. Not for yourself, but for their sake. Knowing how Their hypocrisy dishonors God, brings mockery to the gospel, undermines the veracity and integrity of the word of God. But not only that, it causes us to fear for their sake, lest uh, they are deceived. They're not true Christians at all. On that great day of judgment, they will hear those horrible words, away from me, I never knew you. False faith hurts to the degree false faith hurts, to that same degree, false, true faith encourages. So, Paul remembers these things. And the last thing prompts Paul, the last memory prompts Paul to remind Timothy. Therefore, the simple title of our sermon, Paul remembers and reminds prompted by the memory of Timothy's faith, Paul engages himself in the ministry of reminding his son in the faith. In light of remembering Timothy's sincere faith, Paul engages in the ministry of reminding Timothy. It is an important teaching tool, is it not? I experienced this teaching tool first time from my parents. Kept on reminding me, study hard, study hard. Obviously, I wasn't listening. Study hard. Clean your room. Clean your room. Sleep early, wake up. No, sleep sleep early, wake up early. Doesn't always work, but that's the ministry that parents are engaged in. And for the teachers that are in our church, you understand. This is an important method of teaching. 
reminding. Bruce Moaney, in his book, Preaching with Freshness, gave me early on in my ministry three R's of preaching. I need to follow this with greater fidelity. The first R is repetition. The first R, excuse me, is reminding. Second R is repetition. Third R is reiteration. You want to be a good preacher? Then remind your people. And then repeat what you have just said. And then third, in different words, with illustrations, with different themes and ideas, reiterate what you reminded them and what you just repeated. This is found in the actual praxis of Paul. This is what Paul practiced in his teaching ministry. Romans 15, 14. Now Paul doesn't know the church at Rome. He had heard of them through other workers and reports through other believers. <coughs> so he doesn't know them personally. So he's very gracious in how he approaches them. He said in Romans 15:14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. Paul, knowing that some people are offended when you remind them, when you repeat, when you reiterate, he front loads his exhortation by saying, Now for me, I am confident that you are full of goodness. I am not trying to offend you or insinuate anything. I am confident that you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But... I have written to you very boldly as a way of reminder because the stewardship that God has given to me. I'm reminding you not because you need it, but because I must to be, to be faithful to my ministry. What a gracious, humble way to approach a body of believers. That is our heart as well as the leaders of Cornerstone. I am sure you know everything, right? confident that all goodness resides with you, that you know these truths backwards and forwards, but understand us, you know, help us, right? be patient with us. We do the ministry of reminding you, repeating the same truths again and again, reiterating it, because that is the ministry granted to us. Whether in the pulpit, whether in second hour, whether in flock ministry, the spiritual leaders of our church, remind, repeat, reiterate, because that is the commission we have received from God to do that in Christ's church. Paul was repeatedly doing this. Philippians 3.1 Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. It is good for you that I repeat the same things. And there's no trouble for me. Second Timothy 3.14 Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Remind them constantly. Not just Paul but Peter as well. Second Peter 1.12-15 Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, 
to stir you up by way of reminder. Second Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind as way of reminder. As way of reminder. I think it's intellectual snobbery for us to be seeking after new truths, new insights, some fanciful, innovative understanding of the scriptures. What we need as believers is to know basic truths. And because we are so prone to forgetting them and neglecting them, what you and I need is to be reminded again and again. For these truths to be repeated again and again. Reiterated again and again. And that ought to thrill our hearts. If you're a pastor, recycle sermons. You should be like, praise God. Right? Amen. Keep recycling. Right? If you're a flock shepherd, say the same thing every week. Every week. Man, praise God. I thank the Lord. That is exactly what I need. I don't need like new truths every week. I'm struggling to apply truth from 2003 and I'm behind four years. I know what I need is the basic gospel, basic cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith over and over again as a way of reminder. And that's what Paul did for Timothy. Paul reminds Timothy. And here, he reminds him to do a specific thing. Do a specific thing. Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God. The charisma of God. To better understand this verse, we need to look at that gift of God first. And then look at what it means to fan into flame. What is this gift of God that Paul is reminding Timothy to flame? fan into flame. This gift of God is unique to Timothy. It is special grace that God gave Timothy to fit him for his ministry. Apostle Paul received grace and he spoke of that. He termed his ministry grace of God. (coughs) And the grace that was manifested to Apostle Paul was to be an apostle of Christ. The abnormally born apostle, the least of all apostle, apostle to the Gentiles. That was God's grace given to Paul. Timothy was unique in that Timothy was an apostle to the apostle. Paul was the apostle of Christ. Timothy was the apostle of Paul. He was sent as an emissary as a representative, as a delegate of the apostle to carry out Paul's ministry, to exercise Paul's authority over the churches. Paul, if he could, would split himself, right, maybe through mutation or gene therapy or cloning and clone himself to four other people and go out to the four corners of the world, but Paul couldn't. And there was so much ministry to be done, he wasn't able, he wasn't able to fulfill all the all the needs that are out there so he would send timothy with special authority given to him by the apostle paul to oversee 
various churches. We understand this, right? The autonomy of each local church. Matthew 18, in terms of church discipline, tells us, you take it to the church, and there is no higher authority. There is no denominational oversight of a local church. There is to be no bishop or um, representative, a vicar of Christ on the earth, exercising authority over the local church. It goes to the elders of the local church, and that's it. And they give direct account to the Lord. But during this first century New Testament church age, the Bible wasn't completed yet. The canon of Scripture was not completed. So apostles were ministering to organize churches throughout Asia Minor. And so Paul would send Timothy to exercise leadership and oversight over local communities, over local churches. We don't have that today. We don't have anyone coming to our church and telling us what to do, right? Because succession of apostleship, you know, the laying out of hands, it goes all the way to Paul, so they have oversight over our church, or I don't have oversight over FBC Spokane or Grace Community. Right? We're all autonomous. But here, Timothy received this grace, this authority, this spiritual power and gift to be Apostle Paul's apostle. Paul reminds him, to fan this into flame. Fan it into flame. We experienced uh, recently the volatile mixture, the deadly mixture of wind and fire. There is smoldering fire and there's Santa Ana winds. Fire all over Southern California, all over San Diego County, even in Mexico as well. For fire to truly grow, it needs, uh, you know, what tender brush and wood, and also wind. And wind is flames into a great flame, fans into a great flame. The metaphor that Paul employs is intensify this gift. Use this gift. Present infinitive, continuous action. Use it, Timothy. Keep, continue, be steadfast in fanning this flame, this God's gift. It is implied here that Timothy was neglecting this gift. The fire was burning low. There were only embers. Paul was telling him to fan it into a flame. Paul is reminding him because he commanded him earlier in his first epistle. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4.14. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 is a reminder. 1 Timothy 4, 14 is the first command. 1 Timothy 4, 14. Again, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. I believe this is the pressing reason for 1 Timothy. His urgent reason for writing this letter was the reality that Timothy was struggling in his call, struggling in the pursuit of his ministry, and he was having second thoughts. He was thinking about, I believe, leaving the ministry. Leaving the ministry. He was definitely having a hard time as a young man 
confronting a very difficult situation with false teachers of the church of Ephesus. There were false teachers leading the flock astray. There was confusion about prayer, confusion about roles of men and women, the great work of appointing elders and deacons. He was surrounded, Timothy was, by others who were much older, and he was struggling as a minister. (coughs) It's an imperative command, a direct command. Do not neglect your gift, implying that Timothy was considering abandoning the ministry. It was ministry was so difficult, discouraging and heart wrenching that he thought about quitting and Paul knew it. So Paul commands commanded Timothy not to neglect this call. Now understand Timothy was not considering leaving Christ, just leaving the ministry of leading and giving oversight the church. And to be honest, I can't blame Timothy. And you shouldn't blame Timothy also. You shouldn't look down on him. You shouldn't judge him. You shouldn't think less of him. Leadership in the church, full-time ministry is very difficult. When I come upon a man who is considering leaving Christ, I do everything in my power. To persuade him to not fall into sin and temptation. I do everything in my disposal. I use everything. You must not leave Christ. But when I come upon a man who is considering or involved in ministry as an unordained pastor. And he thinks about leaving the ministry. I am not as strong. I understand. Ministry is so difficult. I recently talked to a young guy this, this past week, 21 years old. It was weird. I used to be the 21-year-old guy wanting to do ministry, and I would talk to this old pastor, 38 years old, right, with gray hair, and I would go to him with all these questions, and he would encourage me. And then this week, oh, man, what happened? <laughs> I'm 38, and you're 21. And he's looking at me like, man, old pastor, you okay? Can I help you here? <laughs> Like, oh man, I don't need any help. I'm fine. But he was saying, oh, he's 21. He wants to go into ministry. He wants to go to master seminary. He wants to be a pastor. I was, I was telling him, I'm happy for the church, but I'm sad for you, brother. Right? Not a not a happy thing. I mean, what, I'm happy for Christ, happy for the church, but I feel sorry for you. Right? It's like those guys who got congressional medals of honor. Wow, he got that medal, but. All those guys guys know, if you have that medal, something awful happened to you, right? (laughs) Man, you got shot up, you got injured, you suffered like crazy, right? So, all things equal, they'd rather not have the medal, right? (laughs) Likewise, pastor, I mean, inwardly, there's great joy. Love the ministry, but tough life. Spurgeon said this, quote, I know that whenever God chooses a man for the ministry, and means to make himself useful. If that man hopes to have an easy life of it, he will be the most disappointed man in the whole world. From the day when God calls him to be one of his captains, and says to him, See, I have made thee to be a leader of the hosts of Israel, he must accept that all his, he must accept all that his commission includes, even if that involves a sevenfold measure of abuse, misrepresentation, and slander. 
we need greater soul exercise than any of our flock, or else we shall not keep ahead of them. We shall not be able to teach others unless God does teaches us first. We must have fellowship with Christ in suffering as well as fellowship in faith. Still, with all its drawbacks, it's a blessed service and we will not retire from it. Did we not accept all this with our commission? Then we should be cowards and deserters if we were to turn our back. These casting down of the Spirit are part of our calling. If you are to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you must endure hardness. You will have to lie in the trenches, sometimes with a bullet lodged here or there, with a saber cut on your forehead, or an arm or a leg shot away. Where there is war, there must be wounds, and there must be war, where, and there must be war where there is to be victory. End quote. The Spurgeon was saying just what Paul was saying. Timothy, do not neglect your ministry. And 2 Timothy 1.6, back to 2 Timothy, fan it into a flame. Timothy, you are doing better. Right. First Timothy was effectual to you, helpful to you. You are doing better, but it's not enough, Timothy. You must fan into flame. This gift of God you have received, you must pursue it with all your heart. You must be devoted to it. You must be passionate. You can't just lie and be content with where you're at. You must, with all your might, exercise this gift. And that is what it means to fan it into flame. And Paul adds, in 1 Timothy 4.14, he talked about the elders laid hands on Timothy. I believe it's the same, same laying on of hands. Timothy I laid hands on you. It was through my laying on of hands you received this gift. I affirmed you. I ordained you. I affirmed this call as a way of encouragement, as a way of persuasion. That's the first reason why Paul implored Timothy to fan this gift into a flame, because of Timothy's sincere faith. He doesn't want to see the sincere faith go to waste. The second reason, second reason is that Timothy possessed a timid spirit. A timid spirit. Now, if you look at all the translations, various translations in English, the Greek word is dalias. It's a only time you find this in the Bible, this word. Half the translations use the word timidity. The other half use fear. Rightfully, it could be 33% timidity, 33% fear, 33% cowardice. Cowardice. They could have used words like insecure. They could have used this longer phrase, given to worry, given to anxiety. They could have used weak sauce. Right? God didn't give you a spirit of weak sauce. Right? Timidity, fear of the unknown, unfamiliar, fear of making decisions, lacking courage, lacking self-confidence, lacking boldness, lacking determination. Timothy was this kind of guy. All right. And again, let's not be hard on Timothy. I mean, I wouldn't do much better. I would, I would do worse. What am I saying? All right. We would all do worse. I mean, more than the fact of his youthfulness, he had a weak body. He was 
He was weak. He was given to illness. And think about this. He was following after the apostle Paul. What is that like? You're a church. You expect Apostle Paul and you get Timothy. So Timothy looks around and he sees disappointment in everybody's eyes. Right? I remember years ago, I got invited to speak at VKCC. I think Dan and Mina were there. My wife was there. I think Sarah was there. All right, Gary, I don't think you guys were there. It's a good thing. And so they, they shared with me this, this and then they introduced me this way. You know, we tried to get John Piper to speak at a retreat, but he was busy. So we got James Shin. I was like, oh man, you know, like, that's not a way to introduce a pastor to speak at your retreat. So I'm coming up there, and I'm like, John Piper was supposed to come? And you invited me? Oh man, that's not right. That's unfair. And the first sermon, I mean, I was, I think, a first year seminarian or second year seminarian. I was still learning scripture. I, st- I was still preaching like, my old, like, false teaching stuff kind of mixed in with right teaching stuff. And so I'm teaching there, and, like, John Coe is there. He's a pastor, an ordained pastor. Tim Cole is there, graduate of seminary. All these other seminarians there are there. Now, first sermon, I just bombed, right? I just choked, right? Like, I know what it's like to wear short shorts, right? Because... That night, even my wife said, James, man, not good. Man, not guy, really, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. You're going to ask Shane was there, right? Man, just why? Because, man, just fulfill the shoes of Piper. I mean, forget about it. Think about Timothy. He's trying to live up to the apostle whom he represented, right? The apostle Paul. The apostle Paul. Not only that, added to that, Timothy was this kind of guy. He was, in his spirit, small s, a weaker guy, a more timid soul, a fear, insecurity. So, a difficult combination for a young man thrust into great work, John Stott said, said of Timothy, this then was Timothy, young in years, frail in physique, retiring in disposition, who nevertheless was called to exacting responsibilities in the church of God. Greatness was being thrust upon him, and like Moses and Jeremiah and a host of others before and after him, Timothy was exceedingly reluctant to accept it. I believe this is why, and you might be surprised to hear this, that the most often repeated command in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the most often repeated command is this. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. I mean, we can go and just do a concordance search of fear or be afraid. And all the way from Moses to Joshua throughout the historical narratives, throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs, throughout the Prophets, Gospels, Acts, New Testament, it's all fear not, fear not. Because the deadliest thing to faith is fear. The deadliest thing, the greatest enemy to following Christ 
and to fulfilling our role as Christians, fulfilling our purpose and obeying God's word, the greatest hindrance is, is fear. It's fear. There's an old parable about how cholera came to London and 100 people died. It's a parable. Five died of cholera. 95 died out of fear. Fear is that deadly. It's the fear of a disease running rampant causes the person to die. Likewise with faith. For Timothy and for us, what threatens us the most is not reality, but it's our perceived reality. The fear and anxiety that multiply within us. That's out of faith and that threatens faith. So Paul reminds Timothy, because of his sincere faith, but because of the presence of this fear, he reminds him, Timothy, the spirit that you have, the mentality, the mindset, the perspective that you have was not given by God. It's not given by God. What has been given to you is the spirit, smallest spirit of power, love, and self-control. God has given to you, given to us power, dynamite, limitless power of endurance to fulfill our arduous work for God. It refers to force of character in general and more specifically strength to boldly dominate any difficult situation with moral authority. Whatever situation that we find ourselves in, God has given us a spirit of dynamite to endure, to persevere, and to overcome. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Whatever difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, we are are sufficient in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Commentator said, in the true Christian, there is the power to cope. The power to shoulder the back-breaking task. The power to stand firm in face of life-shattering situations. The power to retain faith in the face of soul-searing sorrow and wounding disappointments. The Christian is characteristically the man who could pass the breaking point and not break. We're able to do this spiritually. Go past the breaking point and not break. Because the spirit, the mentality the intestinal fortitude that Christ, the Holy Spirit, has given to us, this dynamite. He has given to us the spirit of love, Greek word agape, what causes us to fan into flame. (coughs) The gift that God has given to us, the stewardship that God has given to each of us, what causes us not to give in to fear is love. I mean, love for God, yes. Love for one another. God gives believers this inordinate heart affection of love for Christ's church. And it's our love for the church that, that spurs us on, that causes us not neglect what God has called us to. And finally, uh, self-control. The Greek word is saffron again. George W. Knight, in his commentary, said, this is one of those great great Greek words that are untranslatable by a single word. 
moderation, sensibility, wisdom. George Knight adds, Romans 12.3 is very helpful to us in understanding this word, self-control. It's not so much physical self-control, but it's sober judgment, sound reasoning, reasonableness, sensibility. Let me read to you Romans 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sophron, to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So to think with self-control, sober judgment, is to not overestimate ourselves. To be modest in our estimation of ourselves. Not to be proud, arrogant, self-confident, but to be sober, to be prudent. To not be presumptuous in our relationship with God. And Paul modeled that. How he worked out his salvation with fear and trembling, lest he would be disqualified for the prize. He wasn't presumptuous, walking with a swagger confident that he's a man and, and he's an apostle and he's saved and he's ordering people around. You see his lowly, humble character and his, his walk showing that he wasn't being presumptuous in his relationship with God. He approached God and was dependent upon God through word and prayer. You see Paul, he was not presumptuous in his relationship with people. Like the church at Rome, he didn't know them. So he wasn't presumptuous with them, ordering them around because I'm an apostle. He was humble toward them. Even First Thessalonians, we see as an apostle, I could, I could have asserted my authority as an apostle of Christ, but I came to you with gentleness as a mother nursing a child. Man, you see such wisdom there in his relationship with others, and in Paul knows himself. He has sound judgment. He's not presumptuous of who he is. He knows himself. He knows his strengths, weaknesses, his frailties, what he's able to do, what he's able to not to do. And he conducts himself wisely. That's the spirit that God has given to each believer. It's our, our responsibility to embrace that and apply that to our lives. Where we understand, where we stand before God. Right? Where we stand before God. Where we, how we relate to those who are older than us, younger than us, different genders. How we relate to one another as Christians. How we relate to one another in the family. How we relate to one another in the world. Not being presumptuous. And then the wisdom of knowing ourselves. You know, C.J. Mahaney said this, most men, most people are clueless as to themselves. They know all these facts about all these meaningless things, but they don't know themselves. And I I would have to say after many years in ministry, that is true for so many people. So many people, they don't know who they are. They don't know... They're placed in this world. They don't know their calling, their priorities, their responsibilities. They don't know their own temptations, their own weaknesses. That is not the spirit received from Christ. Therefore, we need to walk in wisdom. Final thoughts. I think I have how many? Five final, four final thoughts. Number one, <coughs> the catalyst for effective Christian ministry. The catalyst for effective Christian ministry we find is not giftedness. 
Right? We find through this, these verses. What is important for effective ministry is not who is vouching for you or who affirms you. It doesn't matter like who you know, who I know, what seminary we went to or what church we belong to. What matters is sincere faith. This is the catalyst for the rest. Spiritual leadership, able leadership, is not about giftedness, talent, knowledge, credentials, personality, or charisma. It's about unhypocritical faith. So we need to put faith before gift, giftedness. We need to put sincere faith ahead of degrees or knowledge or personality. As church leaders, this is what we need to be striving after. Right? We must not be enamored by eloquence or knowledge or charismatic charismatic personality. We, we must not um, build up this idea that these are things that qualify a person for ministry in the church. We must strive after, as leaders, genuine faith. That'll, that is what God will use for, in our lives to build up Christ church here. Unhypocritical faith. Genuine, sincere faith that is marked by integrity. As we look out to the church, men and women, we need to be looking for genuine faith. Not these worldly things or or secular or temporal things we need to look for people who have genuine faith because they are the ones that god will use for his purposes we need to be on the lookout for those who might not be so maybe not gifted maybe not talented maybe unimpressive outwardly but if they have genuine faith god will use them so we need to be looking out for them and ministering to them, serving them in Christ. Secondly, the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I'll tell you how His grace was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Paul was saying, it's God's grace. It's not deserved. It's not me. It's God's unwarranted favor upon me. That's why, that's why I am what I am. But this grace, this divine sovereignty was given to me without, without waste was not in vain. This grace caused me to work harder than any of them. And we are no different. We have received the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you. But that is not the end. We must apply ourselves. An active self-discipline, hard work and sacrifice in order to allow God's grace to work in us and work through us. We're not to be passive participants of God's grace. Yes, God is sovereign. His grace has been given to us. But we have human responsibility and our responsibility is to work hard. 
How hard are you laboring in pursuing Christ? And in the grace that God has given to you, the stewardship, the ministry, the calling that God has given to you, how much effort do you put in to this work? Are you working harder than anyone else? Someone wrote this years ago. Oh my dear Mr. Newton, indeed and indeed, I am ashamed that I have done and suffered so little for him that hath done and suffered so much ill and hell-deserving for me. Here is a man who believes he's wasted much of his time, done too little in service for Christ, and he's filled with regret. Who is this man? George Whitfield. George Whitfield. Incredible pastor, preacher, spent himself for the work of Christ. And his testimony is, I have not done enough. God's grace was far greater than what I actually applied to my own life. God is sovereign in giving us His Holy Spirit, but we have human responsibility. Thirdly, this spirit of fear, timidity, and cowardice. Fear is indeed paralyzing. If the Bible and our text today reveals to us, tells us that our main enemy in our faith is fear. A major threat to our faith and a major threat to your ministry, you ministering to, to Christ and to Christ's church, is simply fear. What is keeping you from going all out and, and growing in Christ and serving Christ is just fear. Fear of what? Uh, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear that maybe God will let you down or you will let God down or you will let others down, fear that God will not be faithful to you. Maybe God's grace you will find is not enough. It's easy to talk about grace seating in the comfort of our lives, but to go out and walk by faith, you fear, what if I walk out by faith and I sink? Fear of being ridiculed, laughed at, being made a fool. Wayne Mack has said, A coward lives by his feelings. They dominate him. He's emotionally up and down depending on how he feels that day. The coward is not as concerned about what is true as he is about what is easy. He will gladly, the coward, will exchange truth for comfort he is always taking the safe path the easy way out he backs away from challenges he's a fence rider he tries to live both for christ and himself at the same time but when there is a choice that must be made he chooses himself over christ every time when opposed he compromises the truth but the courageous person lives by principle His feelings may go up and down, but he doesn't allow them to control his choices. In fact, he often has to act despite his feelings, 
That's what we see in Paul. Paul was not a sadist. He did not find some strange pleasure in pain. He was a person just like us. When he was, when he was whipped, it hurt. When he was beaten, it was painful. When he was shipwrecked, it was difficult. He didn't enjoy these experiences, but he endured them with joy. Because courageous people are people of conviction. Their conviction flows out from their faith. In order to be courageous, you must be a man of faith, a person who knows the scriptures, a person who personally and intimately knows God. We must do away with cowardice. May it not be spoken of any one of us in our midst, that any one of us was cowardly, afraid, timid in our pursuit of Christ and in our pursuit of serving Christ. May we never hear those words about any one of us. Finally, this issue of overcoming fear and living by power, love, and self-discipline, self-control, sober judgment is doubly important for men. For all the men here, it is so important that you are not paralyzed by fear, but you live by conviction. Let me read to you what Doug Wilson said. Many men are just tragically confused, unaware of what being a man is all about. Being a man means he is confident with taking risks. Women can be courageous, sometimes more than men, but that's not the issue. The issue is that if you are a woman and you happen to be shy, timid, or even downright cowardly, you can still feel like a woman, feminine, true to your gender. Courage is not expected of women in our culture to the extent it is expected of men. Many people have a hard time differentiating on the gut level between courage that may entail physical danger and emotional intellectual courage. However, when a man is not courageous or confident, he simply cannot feel like a man. And he loses what is so important. He loses self-respect, which has a disastrous effect on his life, in his relationships with women in particular, and his relationships with other men, and that negatively affects his whole life. To be a godly man, you must be a man first. And a man cannot feel like a man. A man cannot have self-respect. A man cannot have the respect of his wife or other women, and definitely not the respect of other men, if he is giving in to his fears. If timidity, cowardice, is a mark of his life. Now, women, you can be afraid and you maintain your femininity. A man cannot maintain his masculinity while living in fear. Finally, how do we receive the spirit? Spirit of power, love, and sober judgment. Timothy received it through the laying on of Paul's hands. We receive it by walking in the spirit. Right? How do we do it? receive it? By walking in the spirit. Galatians 5 
22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We receive this mindset, this strength, this perspective by obeying God's Word, by meditating on the Scriptures, by abiding in Christ, by filling our minds with God's Word, living in in, in a manner worthy of Christ according to the Word of God. And as we do so, God will produce these fruits in our lives, enabling us to overcome our fears and thus fulfilling God's stewardship that He has given to each of us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the Word has no power without prayer. Even after our Lord gave His upper room discourse, his sermon. He went to you in prayer, knowing that the word of God has no effect unless it is sealed by prayer. So we pray that you would find each heart praying right now, each heart desperately asking you, God, would you show me grace? Would you be merciful? Would you draw us near, draw me near? Would you find hearts that are desperately repenting and resolving, seeking, contemplating, petitioning, crying out to you, God, help me to overcome paralyzing fear and to walk by the Spirit, to bathe our minds with the words of Scripture and to do it to do them, to practice them, so that we might bear fruits of power, love, and sober judgment. We pray doubly for our leaders and the men of our church that we would be men that you would approve of, men of faith and conviction. In Jesus' name we pray. 